Well, here we go with uh, lesson number four out of the series, The Life You Have Always Wanted, But Need Spiritual Discipline in Order to Obtain. You know, um, in our culture, we just plain do not take sin very seriously. Um, one writer put it that the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sin. Um, but in today's uh, world, uh, we, uh, we, we fudge, um, we goof, we make mistakes, um, we don't sin. And correspondingly, we don't feel sorrow uh, over our sin. Um, that same writer um, put a kind of a funny thing on the way that we discuss our sin. He says, you know, as a group, we might get together and say, well, let us confess our problem, our problem with human relational adjustment dynamics, and uh, especially our feebleness in networking. Or I'd just like to share that we need to target a holiness as a growth area in our lives. And uh, the, the summation of that is, where sin is concerned, people are just mumbling now. Uh, we, used to, we used to take sin a, a whole lot more seriously. We, may we used to feel that we had a sin problem. Um, but now, we, uh, we don't want to talk about it. We, we don't want to acknowledge that deep in our own personal hearts and in the hearts of our our society as a whole, we have a problem with sin. And so confession becomes one of those spiritual activities or practices that can help us uh, obtain the life we've always wanted. It can help us focus on the sin that needs to be dealt with, either personally or in our, in our society. I think it's great uh, as a beginning point, though, to acknowledge that there are two different kinds of confessions in the Bible. The first one, the fundamental one, is the confession that we make unto salvation. Remembering that in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about the fact that, that salvation is a gift from God, but there is a part uh, that we play in that process. And in Romans chapter 10, um, it, it outlines that for us a little bit. Romans 10, 9 and 10. He says, um, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So there is a confession uh, that, that is an agreement, uh, an understanding, a, a commitment uh, on our part, that we get the fact that God has done the work on our on our behalf. Redemption came at the cross, and we confess that with our mouth. But there is another kind of confession that's in the Bible, and and I called it in your notes the confession for for fellowship's sake, fellowship with God and fellowship with with others. The truth of the matter is that we all sin every single day, and that sin does separate us from our Heavenly Father and, in fact, constrain relationships around us. Our relationships are strained by disobedience. 
and and the scripture says there is a there's a confession that needs to to take place that restores our our relationship restores the the fellowship we have um, imagine um you as a parent um have a have an issue with your kids and uh they do something that's inappropriate or wrong you have a big discussion about it yeah the discussion's over but there is a a strained relationship at some point the the kids going to going to need to come and restore the the relationship with you yeah the the issue was resolved before but but there's a lingeringness to it there is a sense in which our sin has an impact on our relationship and so in first john uh john says you know if we claim to be without sin hey we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us and then he says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness so on a on a more regular basis on a on a daily basis there needs to be a confession of our sin not and not as the basis of our salvation but as the basis of our relationship our ongoing fellowship with the lord now um in this particular verse in 1 John 1 uh and and other places the the greek word for confess there means to say the same thing about something and to say it out loud so when we confess our sins as it's described in 1 John there we're saying the same thing about our sin that God says. So if we tell a lie and we go to the Lord and we say, well, you know, I, uh, I told a little white uh, fib. That's not confession. Confession is to say the same thing about something that God would say. Call it what it is. God would say, you lied. And, and when we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. When we acknowledge out loud uh, and say the same thing about it that God would say about it, then there is true confession. It's an act of contrition. It allows us to be on the same page with God. We're, we're acknowledging his attitude about maybe a behavior we did or, or something we didn't do or something that was wrong and should not be repeated. We're, we're confessing. We're saying the same thing about something that God would. Now, there are a couple of different ways um, that confession happens. One is very private. It's just between us and God. Um, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, let me turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 5. He, uh, he's talking about our relationship and he says, um, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he gave himself as a ransom for us. So this private confession is just between us and the Lord. We don't, we don't need someone else. We don't, we don't need to go into a, a box and say our sins in front of another person. Uh, this is a private confession between us and the Lord. And, and those private confessions are over things that were private. I put in your notes a, a quote from a guy by the name of Edwin Orr, and he says, you need to distinguish between secret sins and those which have directly affected other people. So if you sin secretly, you confess it secretly. Um, you only admit publicly um, that you need victory over a particular major area in your life. So if you have a small group and you're, you're sharing with them that you're struggling with envy, you don't have to give them the specifics of it unless they were involved. 
So sometimes we forget, and, and confession uh, is kind of like a cathartic experience. We just kind of kind of throw it all out there and feel better when we're done. But, but private confession is just that, private. If you sin openly, yeah, you need to confess it openly because you're going to remove any stumbling blocks from those that have been involved. But if they are not involved, then it's a private confession between you and the Lord. That's why we talk about having a short sin list, the idea that that on a daily basis, you and I would have a sin inventory moment. And we go through the activities of our day, our attitudes, our, our behaviors, what we could have done and didn't do, and, and then we confess them to the Lord. So that's the private confession. And then there's a second kind of confession that, that is shared. It's shared between you and a person that might have been involved. And, and of course, it might include... Um, praying out loud uh, to the Lord in the presence of someone else. Uh, this kind of praying or confessing in front of other people shows up in a, in a particular passage in the book of James. So turn with me to James chapter 5. Now it's important to note the context of this passage. We're going to look at James 5.16. But um, th- this particular situation is a time when there was someone sick and um, they're, they're calling for the elders. It says, is any one of you sick in verse 14, call on the elders. They'll come and they'll pray, anoint him with oil. And then it says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person. Well, the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, this is still the sick person. He will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So the, the immediate context of this passage is someone whose transgressions have violated somebody else, the rights of somebody else, and therefore they're sick. 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 30 says, you know, this is why many uh, among you are weak or sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. It is true that sickness may, out of a whole list of reasons why, may have been a result of sin. And, And in particular, this passage is addressing that kind of sickness. But there is a principle behind this passage that, that applies in all kinds of other circumstances as well. To confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Maybe not physically healed, but, but, but spiritually and perhaps even emotionally healed. Confession is a, is a shared experience when, when you've wronged someone else. Uh, and you need to go to them and confess what it is that stands between you and them and therefore stands between you and the Lord as an issue of sin. Um, confession is, is good for the soul, as the expression uh, might say. The, the practice of confession, how, how do you do this? What, what goes on in your own heart uh, while you, you take that sin inventory and you evaluate the activities of the day and, and you, in, in, in point of fact, find some things that need to be confessed to the Lord uh, and or to, to others. What, what are the steps? And so step number one that I would suggest is kind of a preparation. Um, most spiritual activities that contribute towards this life that we all want to live, those kind of spiritual activities be- begin with a decision. There's a point in which we say to ourselves, all right, now. Now I'm going to do this or stop doing that. In this particular case, with the context of confession, 
we're preparing ourselves by putting ourselves in the care of the Holy Spirit. We say, okay, I am opening up my heart to the gaze of God. I'm actively asking him to step in, take a flashlight, go through the the house of my heart, put some light in every corner, and, and show me the kinds of things that need to be confessed and forsaken. Psalm 139, verses 23-24 say this, Hey, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So it's an active uh, decision. Hey, Lord, go ahead. Do the search. Uncover the things that I, in my own willfulness, or just cut myself a little extra slack, <clears throat> excuse me, those things that I want to just let go. So step number two, right on the heels of that <coughs> thoughtful decision, comes something I'm going to call self-examination. It's more than this a decision to start something. It's a continuation, a resolve. I am now going to get into the ruthless difficult activity of carving through my heart to find that which needs to be confessed. <coughs> in uh, in athletic, athletics, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a point in which they call for something that, that I'm quoting now, a fearless or ruthless moral inventory. A moral inventory. Um, I don't know about you, back when I used to work for a hardware store, once a year we had to literally count every nut and bolt in that uh, store and in, and in the warehouse. Every nut and bolt. So if we had a bin that had, you know, 150 uh, quarter inch bolts, each one of them had to be counted. And then you had to put a number, post a note, on the front of the bin so that you could you could account for it. That's this idea of a moral inventory, a ruthless, careful consideration of sin. Psalm 26, verse 2 says, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Examine it, Lord. Go through. Uh, make that ruthless inventory of, of my, my soul. And confession requires that that during that process, that resolve to self-examine, we resolve to take responsibility. We say, I made a choice. This was my sin. We don't, we don't blame it on everyone else. We don't say if our mother was different or our father was different or we were raised differently or if I was in a different set of circumstances or if I had a different marriage or if my kids paid attention. None of that is part of this self-examination. Self-examination is when I take responsibility for me. I say, I made a choice. I was wrong. Yes, Lord, please test me. Now, some people, it's easier for them to do that moral inventory. Um, for me, it's a, a matter at the end of the day to, to ask the Lord. I review the day. I got up. I met with this person. I did this. I, I went here. I interacted there. I kind of review the things, and then I go, well, gee, that attitude wasn't great. I lack patience there. 
um, I, I put myself in a position to be um, seen in a, in a little bit more glorified manner than I should have. I go through the day. <clears throat> but um, sometimes it might be helpful if you're kind of new at this process is to take lists, you know, kind of go through the list, like, like the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, and again repeated in Deuteronomy 5, I think. You know, take the list of the Ten Commandments. They're the moral law, and, and see where, uh, either in point of fact or in attitude, you transgressed. Um, the, the church down through the ages has had seven deadly sins, which is another list. Pride, envy, lust, greed, slothfulness, and gluttony. That might be helpful. Or, or in Proverbs 6, uh, God gives a list of seven things that he hates. So if God hates them, then, then probably we ought not to be doing them. And so by reviewing that list, it might help us with our time of confession. But at any rate, step number two is that, is that resolve to do self-examination. We started with a thoughtful decision. Yep, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm, I'm going to ask God to search my heart. And then there's a resolve to take the time to do that, to, to do that fearless moral inventory. <clears throat> and that gets us to step three. And step number three is the, is the idea of seeing the sin the way God sees the sin. Now, we've already uh, established that the word confession means to say out loud about something, calling it what God calls it. But, but this adjust your perception is a time for you to say, yeah, that really is wrong. See, we are great at offering excuses. Um, you know, I wouldn't have lost my temper if the kids hadn't uh, blank. Um, we, we, we excuse away our behavior based on what someone else has, has done to us or not done. Um, sometimes we'd like to pass the buck. Uh, we we are so evaluating someone else's sin that ours looks minuscule in comparison. Um, but in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse number 5, Jesus says, Hey, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the little speck that's in your brother's eye. See, we have hypocrisy as, as, it, as it, it becomes a matter of, of sin evaluation. Ours is minor compared to theirs, and therefore we kind of excuse it away. During this step three, we adjust our perception uh, about our sin. We see it the way God sees it. It's a broken commandment. It's a lack of, of follow-through. It's, it's a willfulness or a selfishness. We call it and see it the way God sees it. And if we don't do step number three then there's no way for us to move on in our confession. See, what we're trying to do is establish these, these spiritual activities or patterns to our life. And, and adjusting our perception about sin will help us get there. When we see it as it is, not in comparison to someone else. Well, I'm not a murderer. I, I, I just lost my temper. Well, yeah, great. And there are degrees to sin, uh, of sin. But, but it, for, as it relates to our confession, as it relates to our standing, our relationship with the Lord every day, then we need to adjust our perception and just look at it as it is. Step number four, then, is, is to get a broken heart about it or 
embrace what I'll, what I'll say is embracing godly sorrow to let sin break our heart to to see it as a transgression that hurts uh, the lord bob pierce the founder of world vision once said uh, in his prayer life god i want you to break my heart with the things that break yours he was saying you know i want to have godly sorrow uh, over over the things that I should. You know, I started this lesson by, by talking about how sin in all of its forms really don't disturb us in our life, in our culture. We, we, we make fun of it. We, all, we diminish it. Um, but but it, a, 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 the practice of confession puts us in a place to embrace sorrow, to feel badly about that which we've done. Um, it is very important in our relationship with the Lord on a daily basis to have sorrow over our own weaknesses, our own sins, uh, call them transgressions, the selfishness, the willfulness, the, the putting ourselves first. We need to have sorrow about that. We need to feel badly about that. Now, I want to take a second, though, and talk about this sorrow or feeling badly Turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for a moment. There are two kinds of sorrow uh, or two kinds of guilt um, that the Scripture outlines for us in this passage. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 8, 9, and 10. He's talking about his letter that he's written to the church at Corinth, and he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not blamed, or excuse me, harmed, in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I think what Paul's trying to say there is there's two kinds of sorrow, two kinds of guilt over our sin. One is the one that God is participating in. It brings us to repentance. When, when that kind of sorrow has had its way in our heart, when that grace has, has focused on uh, what was wrong and we've acknowledged that, that, that godly sorrow will result in repentance. We'll say, oh, that was wrong. I don't want to do that. It's productive. That sorrow leads us to something good, which is repentance. And repentance sets us up then on a level playing field to move forward. But on the other hand, worldly sorrow, that's what Paul calls it, it, it does not lead productively to repentance. It's like getting on one of those wheels as a hamster. You just have an endless tumbling around. There's no resolution. You just feel bad, you feel bad, you feel bad, you feel bad. The Bible is calling it a death. It's an emotional death. It is definitely not productive. It just, it's a way of just spinning, stewing in our sin. If you find yourself doing that just over and over and over again in your heart, that's Satan. That's worldly sorrow. That is not productive. Abandon that. 
because godly sorrow leads us to, to repentance. When we feel badly about something as we should, it leads us to confess it and to forsake it. And if all we're doing is stewing in it, then it's not productive. It's not godly sorrow. So step number four in our practice of confession was to embrace godly sorrow. Allow it to bring us to a point of repentance. And step number five then, it's take some action. So now's the time to, to move beyond feeling badly about what we've done and, and even getting to the point of repentance. But now is there something besides the repentance that needs to be included in our in our process of con- confession. And I would suggest that that's action towards things like restitution or resolution. There is an action part to confession. It's not enough to look at someone and say, sorry. It, it is important for you to take that godly sorrow and then do something with it. Maybe stop doing something. Maybe start doing something. Maybe do something differently. But there's a determination for change. There's a, a willingness for an action to take place. Um, a few examples to, to get your mind going. One is just in the book of Leviticus, chapter 6. So he's talking there about things that are stolen or things that are lied about. And he says, in the process of dealing with that, if confessing it, making it right, you need to add a fifth or 20% to the value when you replace it. So if you stole something, let's say you stole 100 bucks, when you confess it, you're not finished when you just look at the person and say, I'm really sorry I took your $100. Now you return the $100, there's an action step, but he's saying, hey, you go ahead and add a fifth or 20% to that. So instead of the 100 you stole, you replace 120. I read an account one time of all the letters that come into the IRS of people uh, presumably Christians who feel convicted about stealing from their taxes and, the, and they send in the, the 20% that they believe they owe the government. Um, it's a great example of taking some action besides just confessing with your mouth. Another example is Zacchaeus in the New Testament in Luke 19. He's a, he's a tax collector and the tax collectors made their living by cheating, by collecting more taxes than were necessary, and they pocketed some of it. And he's had an encounter with with Jesus. And so he says, hey, uh, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, and the parentheses is, and I have, he says, I will pay back four times the amount. So Zacchaeus's confession was not just, oh, I've been stealing from people and I ought to stop that. He takes it one step further and says, I've been stealing, and those that I've stolen from, I'm going to give it back four times as much. That's an action move. That's part of the confession process. One last example. In the book of Acts, uh, chapter 19, the church at Ephesus had a whole bunch of people in it that practiced sorcery. And once they had an encounter with the living God and their lives were changed, as part of the new way of living, the Bible says that they brought their scrolls together that they used in this, this acts, these acts of, of sorcery, and they burned them publicly. See, confession sometimes needs to be public. These, these sorcerers had all these scrolls that were part of their, of their thing, 
And so now they bring them into the city square and burn them so everybody knows, nope, not doing that anymore. Sometimes there's a public element to our confession, but, but an action may be part of, of that confession. And that leads us to step number six, and that's the idea of immersing ourselves in God's grace. It's not enough to just do the repentance and, and even to do the part about restitution or, or resolving things by, by making it right and adding something to that or doing it publicly. The process for confession is not over until we can take a deep spiritual breath and immerse ourselves in grace. It is the grace of God that leads us to repentance. His purpose of having us confess is not just to make us feel bad about what we did or didn't do. Yes, that's part of confession. But at the end, when things are restored, the relationship between us and God is made right. Our relationship with someone else is made right. He wants us to immerse ourselves then in grace. See, it's grace that gets us going, that moves us forward, that helps us solidify, I'm not going to do that again. The greatest example of this is David's life. And we all know the story of of David and his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah and all the rest. But at the end of the sin, there were two particular psalms that were written by David, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Both of them are an uh, expression of his confession and how he felt about the sin. Most scholars believe that he wrote Psalm 51 first, and then Psalm 32 came aim after it. But look at uh, Psalm 51. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. And I want you to take a look at uh, part of this psalm. He, uh, he starts off in verse 2 asking the Lord, or verse 1, to have mercy on him. Then he asks him to wash away all of his iniquities. He talks about how they're in front of him the whole time. He gets it. Verse 4, he acknowledges that while he may have sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and lied to others, ultimately his sin is against God. Verse, verse number 5, he acknowledges that that's his nature. He is a sinner by nature. Verse 6, he talks about, but you require truth. You, you have a higher standard for me as one of your kids. Verse 7, he asks the Lord to cleanse him and wash him. And then verse 8, he says, let me hear joy. And, and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And then verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach uh, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. And then he says, "Save me from my blood guilt, O God, and the God who saves me in the tongue will and and my tongue will sing of your righteousness." And then he and he goes on to say in verse sixteen, "You don't delight in sacrifice, or I, I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt sacrifices or offerings." The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, in verse 13, he's, he's kind of making a vow that, that upon the, the confession that he's sharing, 
And upon God giving him grace to move from that, then he's going to be in a place uh, to fulfill his vow. And his vow is to teach transgressors the ways of God, to, to, to share with others, uh, either in a, in a formal way or an informal way, so that they can grow and learn and become. So, so David is anticipating a lot of things to happen after his confession. He says, then I will teach, or then I will have some productivity to my life. I'll have a chance to participate in God's great plan for my life. I, I, I won't be stuck up on a shelf, discarded or unloved or abandoned. See, it is the grace of God. When we immerse ourselves in that grace, we realize there's a future for us. We don't stop and just wallow in our sorrow. Our confession has moved us so that at the end of it, there is a, there is a future based on God's grace. Verse 14, then, then my tongue will joyfully sing. Joy will fill me again. I'll have a, an active celebration of God's goodness to me. I won't be stopped by my my foibles, I will, I will confess them and re- reject them and be able to move on and see joy restored to my soul. And then in verses 16 to 17, he says, you, you will delight in the sacrifices of righteousness. And he, he's essentially saying to God, okay, from, from here on out, the, the activities of my life will be a sweet-smelling sacrifice. I, I can go on. So step number six is to immerse ourselves in God's grace. When we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us, restore our daily relationship with him. This is an amazing step in trying to achieve the life we've all wanted. I threw some so what questions on there. The first one is, is confession a regular part of your daily devotional life? And then why or why not? And then more fundamental to that is, is there currently any unconfessed sin in your life? Maybe you need to deal with it. I ask a second question, considering maybe the last time that you had to confess your faults to someone, you lost your temper with your spouse, you lost it with kids, you took something that wasn't yours, whatever. Ask yourself the question, was it difficult for you to do that confession? Think about that. And then how did you feel when it was all over, when the confession was finished? As time went by, did that confession help you avoid that particular sin? Was going through the various steps and being intentional about confessing sin something that helped you to avoid it in the future? My third question was, how specific are you when you confess things to the Lord? Do you just say things like, you know, I didn't have a good attitude today? Or do you call it specific? Um, I lost my patience. I used words I shouldn't have. I was unkind. Do you include your attitudes when you're listing the things of the day? I did what I was supposed to, but I had a cruddy attitude. Is that part of your confession? And then I asked the final question, how do you think that a vibrant confessional life contributes towards the life we've always wanted. Lots of good things to think about this week. Well, the Lord bless you. Thanks for coming. It would have been no fun without you.